Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. Man, I love our church. Love seeing you guys who are here in person. And we also want to take a moment to welcome in our online family as well. I just saw that we have Xena worshiping online as well as a ton of others. So if you would, put your hands together. Welcome in our online family. Let them know we're glad they're joining us today. And as you just heard, Easter is one week away, and we are excited to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus with you guys. So make sure you're inviting people to attend. Hopefully, you've already made plans to attend yourself. We're going to have three services, 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 a.m. And if you haven't picked one of these up just yet, we have these awesome First Church color-changing cups that have peeps in it, and we want you to take these and give them to your peeps and invite them to church. So invite your neighbors, your friends, your co workers, family members, whoever, invite your peeps to come to Easter at First Church. It's going to be an epic day. I cannot wait. And following our three services, we're going to have a chance where we uh, offer, uh, if anybody wants to be baptized, can come for it at 1230 in this room right here. If you're on site, you can come get baptized on Easter Sunday. We baptize people any day of the week. But if you want to get baptized on Easter Sunday, then we will be here, the staff and leaders at 1230 to make that happen for you. So if you want to talk to somebody about that, you can go talk to somebody at the hub or see one of our staff members today, email our church office. We'd be happy to talk to you more about that. And then Good Friday, which is actually before Easter, but Good Friday, we're going to have another memorable service out at Stone Canyon Lake. It starts at 7, so make sure you get there before 7 because we're going to start right at 7 so we can watch the sunset as we go through this service. And if you've ever been there before, you know that it is a memorable time. Can't wait for that. If you are a part of our online community, we are going to have an online option on Good Friday. So at seven o'clock, you can join us online and you can worship with us as we remember the death and burial of Jesus as we get ready to celebrate his resurrection on Sunday. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm looking forward to this next week as we celebrate the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Jesus himself. And that's what our series right now is all about. As we are trying to learn from Jesus what greatness really looks like, because he is the essence of greatness. He's our example of greatness, and he teaches us how to live a great life as well. And as we continue on in our series today, there's one truth that I really want to hit on today, and it's this. Nothing is worth keeping if it keeps you from God's greater purpose for your life. Let me say that again, because I think some of us need to hear that. Nothing is worth keeping, nothing is worth hanging on to, holding on to, if it keeps you, stops you, from living out God's greater purpose for your life. Because he does have a greater purpose for your life. When we started this series a few weeks ago and we introduced this term, GOAT, greatest of all time, I'm sure many of you, you went to sports because in the sports world, this is used a whole lot. And I automatically think of Michael Jordan. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. But Michael Jordan isn't just the greatest basketball player of all time, at least I think so. He's not just the greatest basketball player of all time. I also believe he was part of one of the greatest basketball teams of all time. I read an article just the other day online from Bleacher Report that talked about how the 95-96 Chicago Bulls was one of the greatest basketball teams of all time. Their record was 72 and 10. They won the NBA championship and it was a legendary team with some legendary players. But whether or not you think this is one of the best teams of all time, I think you have to agree they had one of the best player intros of all time. Take a look at this clip from the 96 championship game six in the NBA finals. Take a look at this intro. 
I don't know about you guys, but I'm pumped. Like, I'm ready to go ball right now, okay? I'm excited. I remember watching it as a kid thinking, man, what if one day my name is called out, you know, to an intro like that? How cool would that be? But let's just pretend for a second we could go back in time, and you had a chance to go to that game. You know, game six, NBA finals, legendary game, legendary team, and you pay the price for good seats, and you're there ready to take it all in. And so they have the starting lineups, and you hear names like Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman called. And then once the player introductions are finished, the Chicago Bulls kind of wave to the crowd and go to the locker room and leave. They never play the game. Now, you probably wouldn't just be bummed. You'd probably be mad that you spent all that money on tickets and the game was never played because you would be thinking, that's just the introductions. You know, you can't leave yet. You've got to still play the game. You're missing what you're here for. If you, uh, well, actually, back this Christmas, this past Christmas, my family had a chance to go back to Kentucky and watch a Kentucky basketball game. And we hadn't been to a game in a couple years because of COVID. And so Addie, my daughter, she was three the last time we went to a game and didn't remember a whole lot about it. But now she's five. Here's a picture of our family at this game. And they were taking it all in, my kids. They loved it. But one thing that Kentucky does for their player intros is they set off fireworks inside of the arena, inside of Rupp Arena. And you can see here in a second, these fireworks are going to go off. And it's just phenomenal. It's fun to see. And here's the thing. Addie was just mesmerized by those fireworks. She said, they're shooting off fireworks inside. I'm like, yeah, isn't that cool? And she talked about that the rest of the game. Well, after the game was finished, we were talking with her Nana and Papa and her Nana said, so did you have fun? She said, yeah, we saw fireworks inside. And her Nana was like, yeah, I'm sure that was cool. How was the game? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders and Addie goes, it was all right. Like she didn't care about the game at all, but she was excited about the fireworks. It's like, ah, you're missing the main reason why we were there. And spiritually speaking, when it comes to our lives here on this earth, I think sometimes we make the same mistake. I think sometimes we miss one of the primary reasons why we're here as God's people. In John 10, 10, Jesus makes this famous statement. You've probably heard it before. He says, I have come in order that you might have life. Life in all its fullness. Now that word fullness in Greek literally means exceedingly beyond measure, abundantly more, superior, greater. In other words, Jesus is saying, I came so that you could have more life, a full life, a better life than what this world is currently offering you, a greater life than what this world is presently offering you. I came so that you could live for a greater purpose than what's been passed down to you from this world. And Jesus has a term that he uses to describe this greater purpose that he asks us to live. And the term that he uses over and over again in the Gospels is the term kingdom. 126 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And a lot of times when we hear that phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, what we automatically think about is the place we go when we die. You know, when we die and go and be with God, that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of heaven. And yes, that's part of it. God's kingdom lasts for all eternity. Don't misunderstand me, but here's the thing. Jesus teaches that God's kingdom doesn't start when we die. God's kingdom starts in the here and now for us. 
Listen to what Jesus asks us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says that we are to pray for your kingdom to come, God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we are to ask God. We are to seek God's kingdom and ask him to bring it into our lives in such a way that people see his kingdom in and through us. It should be our desire, our goal to see God's kingdom break into our lives. Now, what Jesus here is talking about is not a physical earthly kingdom. When we hear that term kingdom, we think of like, you know, a palace and a throne and all that kind of stuff. That's not what Jesus is talking about. In fact, Jesus clearly says, my kingdom is not of this world. He's not talking about a worldly kingdom, a political structure that would exist on planet earth. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something different, something that's outside this world, but is to be present in this world. What he's talking about is a sphere of influence. In other words, as God reigns as king in heaven, so he should reign on the earth. As God reigns in heaven, he should reign in your life. As God reigns in heaven, he should reign in your family. He should reign over your place of work. He should reign over your hobbies that you participate. He should reign over your conversations. As God reigns in heaven, he should reign in your life as well. And as you live for him as king, you will live for the standards of heaven. And his reign, his kingdom will invade the lives of those around you. See, when you think about the kingdom, God's kingdom isn't necessarily a place, but a, re but a reality where Jesus reigns. It's not necessarily a place, but a reality where Jesus is recognized as king. Our goal in life, our greater purpose in life should be for what's up there to come down here. Should be for the character and the standards of heaven to collide with what we're experiencing on a daily basis in this world in such a way that God's kingdom expands on the earth. And let me give you a picture of what that looks like. It looks like this. This is a picture of a group of students from our church who went on a mission trip this past spring break to Mexico. And they went on this mission trip to show God's love to people that they didn't even know, that they had never met before. And they built a house for people who they had never met before. And why did they do this? They did this to serve people in the here and now. And it's a picture of God's servant serving him in the present. But you know what else this is? This is a picture of things to come. When one day, all tribes, all nations, all peoples will be gathered, united around the throne of God. It is currently a chance for us to serve people in such a way where we give them a preview of what heaven's going to look like as they experience the love and the character and the grace of our God. Here's another picture of what this looks like. This is a group of our young adults who also went on a mission trip to Mexico. And they went giving up their time, 
in order to go and serve others. Again, people that they didn't even know because by serving, they are showing people who their God is. And as they serve, God's kingdom breaks into this world. Here's another picture. This is a picture of our junior high students. They're an interesting looking group, aren't they? These are some of our junior high students. And they didn't necessarily go anywhere. They stayed here in Owasso in the surrounding area. But they went out and they served our local community. And they served people who didn't ask them to. They served people who couldn't pay them to serve. But they did it anyway. Why? Because they wanted to introduce people to the love of God and show them, show people that there's a God who cares about them and they are his servants. What are they doing? It's a picture of us serving in the present, but also a picture of what is to come. When everybody gets to experience the love of God and everything is made right. See, every time that we do God's will on this earth, God's kingdom breaks into this world. See, every time that we serve instead of being selfish, God's kingdom collides with the world that we're living in right now. Every time that we forgive someone when they don't deserve it, God's kingdom breaks into people's lives. Every time that we choose purity rather than the sexual ethics that is accepted by our culture, God's kingdom breaks into our world. Every time a marriage is restored because that couple decides to make God the foundation of their home, God's kingdom invades our world. And just this past Sunday, we had our baby dedication here at First Church and our student auditorium was full of families who were here to make a promise that they're going to dedicate their lives to raising these children in such a way that those children will be introduced to who Jesus is, that their homes are going to be Christian homes. And I saw parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends who are all dedicating themselves to raising these children in such a way that they will come to know God. And as they were making those commitments and promises, heaven was breaking into this world. Every time that we live for God's will, instead of our selfish desires or the desires of the culture around us, heaven comes to earth. You see, the kingdom of heaven is something that starts now. And that's why over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus will use this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Over and over again, He'll make statements like, the kingdom of heaven is like this, or the kingdom of God is like this. And you know what he says after that? He typically doesn't talk about, like, the place we go where we die. You know what he talks about? Practical daily living. He says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells us how to deal with sin. There's not going to be sin in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he gives us a parable or teaching about how to forgive somebody. We're not going to have to forgive anybody in heaven. Over and over again, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he gives us some practical daily advice. Why? Because when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, he is saying this is what it looks like for God's kingdom to break into your life. This is what it looks like for you to live out the greater purpose that God has for your life. And this is one of the primary reasons why Jesus came. When you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see that there are five chapters all together about the birth of Jesus. And there are 13 chapters all about Jesus' arrest and death and resurrection, which we're really going to be celebrating here in this next week, right? But then there are 71 chapters about Jesus' way of life and his teachings. 
Yes, the primary reason why Jesus came was to pay the price of our sins on the cross and defeat death. Yes, that's the primary reason why he came. But don't lose sight of this. The majority of the content of the Gospels is about how to live in the here and now. Because while we are here, we have a purpose. And that purpose is to show people who our God is. To show people the character and the nature of our God. To show people what kingdom living looks like. And when we live for God's kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of this world, we change the world. And when you understand that this is your purpose, this is your calling, well, you will sacrifice anything to make sure that that calling is lived out because you will understand what that's worth. Let me say it again. Nothing is worth keeping if it keeps you from God's greater purpose for your life. And that's the very point that Jesus is going to make when he tells two short little parables in Matthew chapter 13. And that's where we're going to study today. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to study two short twin parables that Jesus tells. And before we actually read these parables... Let me make sure we're all on level ground. Because some of you, if you're new to church, you might be thinking, what's a parable exactly? Well, a parable is a story that Jesus tells that where he uses common everyday language and illustrations that we can get, that we understand, but then he uses common everyday language to explain a greater eternal truth. See, the word parable actually comes from a Greek word that means laying something down next to something else. In other words, what Jesus does here is he throws down a common example, something that his first listeners would have been very familiar with, and then he throws down beside it something that they weren't as familiar with, a, an eternal truth that they needed to learn. And he uses the common everyday illustration to explain this eternal truth that they didn't know yet. The whole point of parables wasn't for Jesus to conceal truth or hide truth or veil truth in some way. He wasn't like trying to make sure that his enemies didn't have any evidence against him to attack him or anything like that. He wasn't trying to hide his truth from anybody. What he was doing was he was trying to help his listeners understand God's greater truths. So every time that we read a parable, what we should be asking is, what is Jesus trying to teach us about the nature of God's kingdom, about kingdom living? So keep that in mind as we read these, short, these two short parables that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like, there it is, there's that phrase again. The kingdom, of, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like, there's the phrase again, a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, what we first need to recognize is we're not Jesus' original listeners. In the first century world, they would have understood this imagery better than us. Because basically what's going on here is Jesus says, there's this dude who's walking through a field. That's the first parable he tells. And he's walking through a field and all of a sudden he finds some buried treasure. Kind of sounds like a pirate story, doesn't it? Uh, by the way, my son Alex, he's eight. He loves to tell cheesy jokes and he thinks that they're funny. He told me this one a while back. He said, daddy, where is it that pirates like to go eat lunch? 
I'm like, I don't know where. And he said, Arby's. Okay, I know it's not a great joke, but that's what you get when you have a preacher with young kids. You get the cheesy jokes, okay? But still, it sounds like a pirate story, right? But it's not. See, this was more common in this day and age than probably our day and age. In this day, the banking system wasn't great. It wasn't very secure. So you know what families would do to keep their possessions safe? They would bury their valuables, their treasures, in a secret place on their family land. And what would happen is sometimes, uh, see, not all the family members would know where it was. And so sometimes the family members would die who knew where the treasure was. And then they would sell the land and somebody else would inherit it. And they might find the treasure on that land. An even more likely scenario was that this land where Jesus is currently uh, ministering, where he's currently ministering, this land had been conquered numerous different times by various armies over the past several hundred years. And so a foreign army would come in, they would take over the land, and they would kick the family out or take them exile. And so you would have families that had buried their treasure somewhere on their land, and now they're not living there anymore. So new people would come in and live in this land. They had no idea there was a treasure there. And so this didn't happen all the time, but occasionally somebody who would purchase a new piece of land would go roaming around and find some hidden treasure. Now, again, that sounds a little bit odd to us, but we still have situations today where people find hidden treasure. In fact, one of our staff members here at First Church, a few years ago, they bought a new house here in town, and as they were doing some work around their old house to sell it, they found this in their closet. They found a hidden safe, and it was locked, and they tried to open it, but they couldn't get it to open, and so they debated back and forth before they moved. Do we try to dig this thing out, you know, and see if there's any treasure in it? And they decided not to because the expense was just way too much and so he told me just the other day the way that he sleeps at night knowing that that safe is still there is that whenever somebody opens it it's gonna be full of like dead spiders and stuff that's how he sleeps at night he's just sure there's not like gold bars in there or anything like that but still every now and then we hear stories of people finding hidden treasure right well that's what's going on in this parable this guy's out checking out this land he's probably thinking about buying it because the land is for sale And he comes across this buried treasure. And I'm not sure how he came across it. I don't know if he's walking with his walking stick and all of a sudden he hits something. He's like, wait a second, that's not dirt. What is that? And so he then digs it up and he finds out what it is. I don't know, but the man could have just taken the treasure. He could have stolen it. And that would have been illegal and immoral in this day, but he didn't. What he does is he puts it back. He buries it back. And then he goes, goes and he buys the land because in this day and age, it was customary and it was legal. If you bought a piece of land, whatever was on it when you bought it was now yours. And this happened all the time. People understood this. No one would have been mad if after this guy bought this land, it was uncovered that he found some hidden treasure. They would have just thought, man, I wish that I would have, you know, beat him to it because this kind of stuff happens. So this guy does the moral thing, the legal thing. He goes and he buys the piece of land. Apparently nobody else even knows this treasure exists. And can you imagine being this guy's wife? Because it says he had to sell everything in order to buy the land. Because the land was pretty expensive apparently. So imagine him going to his wife and saying, honey, we got to sell everything. We got to get rid of everything. We got to sell the house. Before we do, we got to have a yard sale and we're going to sell our cars. We're going to sell all of our furniture. We're going to sell all of our valuables. We're going to sell our TVs and our computers and iPads and phones. We'll even sell the kids if we have to. I mean, we're selling everything. Can you imagine? I'm kidding about the kids, but can you imagine 
Him coming home and telling his wife, we got to sell everything. And his wife is probably thinking, uh, honey, uh, what's wrong with you? You know, what's going on? Who have you been around here recently? What's happening? She probably thinks he's nuts. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. You haven't seen the treasure that we're going to get if we give all this up. See, this man was willing to sell everything because the treasure he had found was greater than anything else he had in life. The second parable, it's similar to this one, but a little bit different. It's about a guy who sold pearls. He was a pearl merchant. So he would will and deal when it comes to pearls. He's a collector who also sold them. And so he's out searching for more pearls that he can sell. He's like a wholesaler. So the difference here right away is the first guy stumbles across his treasure. He's not necessarily looking for it, but he finds it. He's doing something else and he finds a treasure. But in this next parable, this guy is actually looking for treasure, but he finds a treasure that's far greater than what he was looking for. He finds this perfect, beautiful pearl, a pearl that is unlike any pearl he's ever seen before. And he knows immediately he has to have it. And so what does the text say that he does? He goes and he sells everything, even all the other pearls that he has. He sells everything he has in order to have this one great pearl. Now, why would he do that? I was reading online just the other day about a fisherman from the Philippines who was out fishing one day and found one of the world's largest pearls. It's, it weighs about 75 pounds. It's about two feet in length. It is huge. If you go online and Google it, it's crazy. But he bought this, I mean, he found this pearl. And when he found it about 15 years ago, it was estimated to be worth about $100 million. And no one knew it even existed. But now 15 years later, you know what they say it's worth? about $300 million. It's tripled in price, and nobody knew it existed before this fisherman found it. See, this pearl merchant knows. Yeah, I'm going to sell everything in order to get this one pearl, but it's just going to keep going up in value. It'll all be worth it. And Jesus here is telling us again, this guy was willing to give up everything because the treasure that he had found is greater than anything else he has in life. And then Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. So what's Jesus getting at? What's Jesus trying to tell us here? I think this is what he's trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us that when the treasure is great, the sacrifice seems small. When the treasure is great enough, you will sacrifice anything for it. When the treasure is great, whatever you have to give up for it seems small. And what Jesus here is saying is, I am offering you a treasure that far outweighs anything this world could possibly give you. I am offering you a life that far outweighs the cookie cutter existence that's been passed down to you from your culture. I am offering you a standard of living that is far better, far more joyful and full of peace and contentment than anything you will find in this world. I am offering you a treasure that's not here one day and gone the very next. I'm offering you a treasure that can't be taken away by cancer or by the government or by a pandemic or by thieves or by wars or betrayals or identity theft or even death itself. I am offering you a forever treasure that will always last. And you know what that treasure is the kingdom of God and he says 
throughout his teachings, when you think about the kingdom, don't think of a place necessarily, but think of a person. And by person, I mean him. Because the kingdom of God is not necessarily about a place, but it's about doing life with Jesus. And when you do life with him, you're a citizen of his kingdom. And what Jesus here is saying is, don't miss what I'm offering you. I am offering you a greater life than what you're living right now. I'm offering you the best life. I'm offering you a greater purpose. I'm offering you a chance to actually make eternal differences in the lives of others. I am giving you an eternity that you can't imagine. I'm giving you all this. I'm giving you peace that passes understanding. I'm giving you joy that will fill your heart even in the midst of sadness. I am giving you contentment. I'm giving you direction. I'm giving you wisdom. I'm giving you guidance. I am giving you a life that is far greater than anything you have ever experienced. Don't pass it by. Whether you're somebody who has been searching for it and you find me, and it's even greater than what you first realized, don't pass me by. Or maybe you're somebody who's not looking for me, but you stumble across me in some way, like the guy who found a treasure in a field. That's okay too. I don't care how you find me, whether you stumble across me or you go searching for me, however you find me, don't miss what I am offering you. Because I'm offering a treasure that won't fade away. And so many times we live for treasures that are truly here one day and gone the next. Treasures that we can't take with us. I used to say in sermons, I used to say, you know, you will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. I used to say that, and then one day somebody sent me this picture, and it's a picture, picture of a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Now, I know this person was trying to be funny, and ha-ha, thank you for ruining my illustration, but at the same time, a hearse can pull a U-Haul if it wants to. You still can't take it with you, can you? We know that to be true. And so let me ask you, what is it? What is it that you refuse to sell? That's in your heart right now. You refuse to give it up in order to obtain what eternally, what ultimately matters. Because one day all treasures will be gone besides one. And the one treasure that will last is the greatest treasure of all time. And that is Jesus himself. And if you have been living for any other treasure besides him, if you've been chasing after any other treasure besides him, on that day when all other treasures are gone, you will be disappointed. Your heart will be broken if you haven't accepted him as the greatest treasure of all time. So I want to ask again, what is it that you refuse to sell, you refuse to give up in order to inherit the greatest treasure of all time? a relationship with Jesus, life with him. Is it your pride? Is it your power? Your influence? Your status? Your popularity? Your stuff? Your money? Your wealth? Is it some addiction? Is it some pleasure? Some hidden sin? Is it some theological or church tradition that you refuse to give up that isn't found in Scripture? What is it? What is it that you refuse to give up? Because all those things may seem important now and may seem great now, but in the end, they are nothing but trash. That's what Paul says. 
Listen to his words in Philippians. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. Guys, I've spent way too much of my life buying trash. I've wasted way too many years of my life chasing after trash. And that's what Satan wants. Satan's ultimate goal is for us to never realize just how valuable the kingdom of God is. For us to never realize the kingdom's true worth. Because he knows, our enemy knows, that when we realize the true value of God's kingdom, we will stop wasting our lives on meaningless things that just continue to rob us of real and lasting joy. Did you catch how the man who bought the field, how he left after he first found the treasure? It says, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. He had joy before he even purchased the field. You know why? Because following Jesus starts with joy and it ends with joy. And I don't think that's always the image that is portrayed in the church today. I think sometimes our mindset of the church is, well, you gotta follow Jesus, and when you follow Jesus, it's gonna be hard, it's gonna be tough, and so it's gonna be basically a miserable life because you gotta give up all this stuff and make all these sacrifices, and he's gonna limit your fun and hold you back, and you're not gonna get to do all the cool stuff that everybody else does, but it's okay because then one day you'll go to heaven. That's how some people see Christianity. And the Bible says that is absolutely false because Following Jesus starts with joy and it ends with joy. Yes, Jesus will call us to make sacrifices. Yes, Jesus will ask us to give things up. Yes, Jesus will ask us to change our lifestyle. Yes, Jesus will ask us to leave certain sins. Yes, Jesus will give us a better way of life. But we give all this stuff up, not out of obligation or out of force. We give it up out of joy because our eyes are on the treasure and we know that the treasure found in Jesus far outweighs anything else we have in this life. And so we press on, not out of obligation, but in joy, because we know the treasure that awaits us. And when we live with joy, the joy of the Lord, the world notices. It's our witness to the world. And when I think about that, I think about a scene that happened about a week before Jesus went to the cross. You know, today's Palm Sunday. Today's the day when Jesus made his triumphal entry, came into Jerusalem, and the crowds cheered him on and said, Hosanna, and they celebrated him as their king. But again, they were wanting an earthly king. And when they found out he wasn't going to be the king they wanted, then they started to say, crucify him. But prior to the triumphal entry, prior to Palm Sunday, just a couple days before, Jesus has a meal in Bethany, a dinner with some of his closest friends and disciples. And Mary, the sister of Martha, was there. Do you guys remember what Mary did? In the middle of the meal, Mary comes up to Jesus with this alabaster jar of perfume. The Bible says that this jar of perfume is worth about a year's wages. It's a really, really expensive jar of perfume. You know what Mary does? She breaks this jar because it could only be used once. And then she anoints Jesus with it. She gives it to him. 
This was probably Mary's inheritance. This was probably her most valuable, prized possession. And she gives it up in order to honor Jesus. And when the disciples, Jesus' disciples, see Mary do this, they are furious. They're mad. And they ask this question out loud. Why this waste? And they say, the money could have been used for a greater purpose than that. Why would you do this? Why would you waste it on Jesus? And my question to you today is this. Was it a waste? Well, if Jesus is just a good guy who did some good things, yeah, it was a waste. If Jesus is just some famous moral philosopher or teacher and nothing else, then yeah, it's a waste. If Jesus was just a political figure who came to start a political revolution on this earth, it's a waste. If Jesus is just a tradition to you or a hobby to you or a pastime, then yeah, it's a waste. But if Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, if he truly is God in flesh, if he truly came to stand in your place and my place and pay the price of our sins on the cross, and then defeat the grave so that we could have life beyond the grave. If he truly is who he claims to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, then you could take all the wealth, all the possessions, all the fame, all the power, all the influence of this world and cram it in that alabaster jar and break it at Jesus' feet and it still wouldn't compare to what he's done for us. Mary got that. Mary knew that. And Mary gave up her most prized possession, treasure, in order to give it to Jesus. You know why? Because that alabaster jar wasn't her greatest treasure. Jesus was. And he is worth everything. As we enter this week of Easter. Could you say the same about your own life? Because you know what Jesus says about Mary? He says, why are you bothering this woman? He says that's his disciples who are supposed to know him better than anybody. She has done a beautiful thing to me. She did it to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And 2,000 years later, we're still talking about what Mary did. You see, when you give your greatest treasure, when you put it on the altar in order to give it to Jesus because you see him as the greatest treasure of all time, and you do it with joy, the world notices. And heaven breaks into the sadness of earth. Satan wants us to look at the price the price that we're asked to pay in order to give up things to accept this treasure that Jesus wants us to have. Satan wants for us to look at the price. But Jesus says, keep your eyes on the ultimate price. Because when you do, 
you will pay whatever price is necessary for the joy of heaven to invade the sadness of earth because you know it's worth everything. See, nothing is worth keeping if it keeps you from God's greater purpose for your life. Let me ask you today, again, as we enter this Easter week, is there anything right now in your heart that you are refusing to sell, refusing to give up in order to embrace the greater treasure, the greater life, the greater purpose that God has for you? Because nothing in this life is worth hanging on to if it keeps you from Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for offering us a chance to inherit the greatest treasure of all time, life with your son, life in your kingdom. And I just pray that this week as the world celebrates Jesus, that Father, we would be those who would be willing to break our alabaster jars and give up everything for him because we know he's worth everything. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.